of the Church Bibles, Job 33, and also inside your service sheet hopefully is a white outline of uh, where we're heading as we look at uh, this section of Job together. James chapter 5, verse 11. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That's James' take on the uh, 42 chapters of Job that we are working our way through. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Do you believe that? From what you've seen so far of this book, that the big take-home message from all of these chapters is that our God is a compassionate and merciful God. A book that so far has detailed unparalleled suffering of a man, throwing up huge questions about our God along the way. Do you believe that we are meant to find here, right in the middle of this book, the clear message that our Lord is full of compassion and mercy? Seems a stretch, doesn't it? Well, that's our goal tonight, to see just that message in this book, to see that our Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So let me pray for us and let me ask for God's help as we do that together. Heavenly Father, we know that you are kind and good. And so we pray now as we open Job again together that you would open the eyes of our minds and our hearts and our souls that you would clear away from us unbelief, that we would see you as, we re- as you really are and that we would trust you. Amen. Well, a new life is a remarkable thing and uh, every new life starts with just a moment. 2am on Wednesday morning was a moment just like that. Uh, the phone in my house rang. It started to ring. It rang some eight times. That's eight separate phone calls before finally uh, I realised that it wasn't in my dream that the phone was ringing, it really was ringing and I stumbled downstairs to pick up the phone to hear my neighbour Rob Shenton breathlessly telling me, finally getting through, that the moment had arrived. His wife Rachel was in labour and that they were off to the hospital. It's the start of a remarkable story and yet a story that's played out in our world again and again and again each day. Hours later, later Wednesday, a new life was born, Daniel Shenton. And his story has just begun. So many uh, moments yet to come, so many lines yet to be written in his life. And each point along the way will have so much detail in it, won't it? Every day, every moment. And it flies by so quickly. I felt that again uh, this week as I reapplied for a visa to stay in this country And as part of the process, I had to take uh, new passport photos of the family. And as I handed it over to the lady, as she saw uh, Jamie, our daughter's picture, and she sort of looked at the one from two years ago when we arrived, and this one, she said, are you sure that's the same person? (laughs) And I'm looking at them and I said, you know what, I'm I'm not sure. (laughs) So much has happened in those two years, so many moments, so much detail. She's gone from uh, being a bronzed Aussie standing in the rock pools of a Sydney beach to a moon-tanned Yorkshire lass (laughs) with an accent to boot. Actually, a bit of a mixed accent. It's quite uh, quite a uh, remarkable accent she's developing. It's been an amazing journey, two years of moments, two years filled with details and you, no doubt, with more years behind you than little Jamie. 
so many moments in your life. If someone was to write the story of your life, all all the details, all the lines that it's had, what would it sound like? The story that's unfolded thus far. I imagine uh, in that time there have been many highlights along the way, many moments when you look back on them, you think that was life at its best. The golden days where you tasted life in all its richness, where, where you thought the cup of blessing that God was pouring out on you couldn't get any fuller than it was right at that moment. Perhaps it's uh, memories of your childhood. Perhaps it's uh, moments with good friends laughing so hard you thought your sides were going to split. And perhaps it's uh, meeting the one you have shared life with. That was the moment. Or perhaps it's a moment just like the Shentons have had this week. What are your glory days? That even remembering them now, uh, the thought of them brings a smile to your face. Well, our brother Job knew moments like that. Do you remember the picture of him right at the start of the book of his family? These were the golden days of Job. So much success. So many wonderful relationships. A picture of joyful celebration after joyful celebration. They loved spending time with each other. And they had a great love and faithfulness for their God. These were the glory days. But what if? What if rather than such golden moments, your life was punctuated with deep faults of hurt, of unrelenting suffering that that just seemed to go on beyond any horizon that you could see? What if your life was filled with scars too deep to heal? And along the way there was just a building catalogue of questions for your God that seemed to go unanswered. What if the moments of your life were now so clouded by pain that it had become near impossible to see the golden days of the past? Well, what if your light was like the one Job is living before our eyes when after years of blameless living, years of faithfulness to his God, towards his family, even to strangers we're told, In chapter 31, he is left asking the question he asks in chapter 31, verse 35, why? That someone would answer me, that someone would hear me. I sign my defence, I know I'm guilty of nothing, I know I am blameless, I know I have not caused this. Let the Almighty answer me. Why? What if that's the question on your lips? What if... And I say it as if it were hypothetical and for me the question at the moment is, for now, but for Job the question of why the innocent suffer is no coffee shop discussion, it is raw life. And I imagine for many here and many we know the experience in some form or another is all too real and too close to home. And we long with Job to hear the answer, why me? Why this? Why now? What have I done to deserve this? Yes, I'm a sinner, says Job throughout this book. He's under no delusions that he's a perfect man, but he's blameless. He's righteous, not in himself, but like us, because of God. Like us, he would say, you know, I've thrown my lot in with you. I've thrown my lot in with Jesus. You said that's all I had to do. Now this. I've said to you, God, you take the lead. You take control in my life. You be in charge. But right now, I can't see how possibly the way you are taking me is the right way to go. 
Let the Almighty answer me, says Job. No more silence, no more grin and bear it. I am blameless. I've done all I was supposed to do. You cannot do this to me without explanation. Why won't you speak to me? That's Job as we rejoin him in this story in chapter 32, desperate for an answer. And now his miserable friends who've done nothing but tell him of this supposed sin that's non-existent have nothing left to say. And then it comes. Not God's answer as we might expect or want, but another voice, an as yet unnamed and unspoken member of this discussion, Elihu. He speaks up, we're told, in, in chapter 32, out of youthful anger. And the next six chapters are given over to him as he responds to Job's demand. Elihu, I suspect, has been part of this gathering of friends all along, but because of his young years has kept quiet in deference to the elders. But now incensed by their inability to answer Job and incensed by by Job's demand that God answer him, he speaks up. He's the ultimate angry young man. And it points out in these six chapters he is a bizarre figure. His wordiness leaves everyone else for dead. If you uh, scan through chapter 32, the entire chapter is given over to him him saying, I'm about to say something. Verse after verse of endless reasons why he needs to say something. And then by verse 18 he's telling us, I'm bursting to say something. It's hard not to think, well just get on with it buddy. As we turn to chapter 33, just as he's about to actually say something, he gives yet more reasons why he needs to say something. Let me say, for for all the frustration that this gives us as readers, as Elihu endlessly waggles on the tee before us, it's worth asking why the scriptures give him such a wide berth. The speeches of the three friends have been getting smaller and smaller. The one before him is only six verses long and now we have six chapters of Elihu. I suspect the Bible is telling us to do what Elihu says himself in chapter 33 verse 1, pay attention to what I am saying. For while much of his words are off the mark and as he goes along he seems to lose the plot along the way just as the friends have done. His first speech in chapter 33 and then his final words in chapter 36 I think tell us something unmissable as we watch this story of Job. And if we, like Job, long to hear an answer to the question, why? You see, Elihu answers that question for Job and therefore for us as we listen in, in three different ways. Firstly, and I think very helpfully, after we've, we've gone through chapter after chapter of watching the friends interact with Job, he, he shows us why they're so wrong. The whole time they've been fixed on Job and his potential sin and at last Elihu steps onto the scene and says, you're looking in the wrong place. Start looking towards God, not Job. And he says the same thing of Job. For for all Job's desperate attempts to show that he is blameless, that he is innocent, he's gone so far that he started to make it look like God has bent the rules with him. That if he is innocent, the only guilty one could perhaps be God. He doesn't say it, but that's where he's heading. And so Elihu says to Job in chapter 33, verse 12, in this you are not right. The second way he answers Job is to show him how great his God is, far greater than any man. 
He reminds him of this, not, not as some excuse for God, as if to say, God's big, you're small, so tough luck. But to show, that Job, to show Job that God may well have purposes and plans and perspectives that Job can't possibly comprehend, just like any father has with his child. But the wonderful thing that Elihu will show us is that this father, our heavenly father, is compassionate and merciful. And I think we see this in Job's third answer. And for me, this is his wonderful contribution to this book. Why has God caused this? Having rebuked Job for questioning God's care, having shown him that God is sovereign, he now assures Job of the very thing he wants. Remember Job back in 31, he says, why won't God speak to me? Do you see Elihu's answer in chapter 33, verse 14? God does speak to you in more ways and more often than you can possibly comprehend. Let me read it, verse 14. For God does speak, now one way, then another. Though man may not perceive it, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when the deep sleep falls on men as they slumber in their beds. Job, Elijah says, God does speak to you. He speaks first through his revelation, through we're told he described in verse 15 as dreams and visions, a description synonymous all the way through the Old Testament for God's word to his people. This is how he spoke his word. As Hebrews 1 tells us, God spoke in many and various ways, dream after dream, vision after vision and always very clear to the one he was speaking to. Elihu is assuring Job that he does speak to him through revelation, through his word. And let me say, I think this is meant to assure us as well. When we feel God's silence, be assured he speaks to you. And for us, he doesn't just speak the odd dream or vision, but we are the privileged ones who have his complete word to his world, telling us everything we need for life and salvation all the many and various ways he has spoken to his people over time are recorded for us, kept for us in the scriptures. Elihu says to the one who feels that God is silent, God is always speaking to you. Are you listening? Let me say, I think this is good news, especially if you have got to the point with God where you feel so angry with him, so confused by him that you've got to the point, I can't possibly be reading the Bible at a time like this. There's so much muck in the way between God and I, I'm not going to be reading it right now. I can't. Too many questions, too unsure of his purposes for your life. Why me? Why why not me? Or or why has it taken so long? Whatever the question may be. Well, if that's you, Elihu says, God is not silent. He does answer you. And he also says, you cannot hope to rebuild your relationship with God without listening to him. And if you're too angry to read his word, let me say the very thing you need to do is start communicating again. Listen to him. He's speaking. I think it's also good news for any here who think, look, I'm not even at that point. I'm not even sure whether I believe in the God you're speaking about. I have too many questions. And yes, some of them are about the mess our world is in and the evil in our world. How can a God possibly let that happen? 
Once those sort of questions are answered, then I'll start listening. Elihu says, you want answers, the only place you're going to get them is if you listen to him, for he will answer you. And let me say as well, I think it's also important news for any of us here, and I suspect this is many of us, who are not in the grip of suffering right now. I think these verses tell us now is the time to be filling your head and your heart and your soul with God's voice. So when suffering does come, and it will, you can still hear him speaking to you. You can still hear the word of his promise saying, I'm with you in this. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll get you through this, trust me. But then I think comes something even more remarkable in Elihu's answer. He says to Job, not only does God speak to you through his word, through revelation, but he also speaks to you when you suffer. In fact, he speaks through that suffering. The very place and the very time that we think God is silent is when he is shouting the loudest. Have a look at verse 15 of chapter 36. Elihu says to Job in verse 15, he says, but those who suffer he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. Or more literally, he opens their ears through affliction. I reckon that's terrifically hard to get your head around. That God would speak rough words of suffering into your life for good. Because he loves you. That's hard, isn't it? The picture here is of a God using suffering to refine us, to change us, to open our ears. Job is blameless. He is righteous before God. There is no doubt about that all throughout this book. But as he admits throughout this book, he is not the finished product. He still has rough edges like the rest of it. In fact, I think if he didn't, he would be useless to us, wouldn't he? If he was perfect and blameless in the sense that he had no sin, then we could always look at him and say, well, that might be true for you, Job, but but I'm not like that. No, just like us, he's not the finished product. And what we're seeing here from Elihu is that God uses even suffering to shape us, to change us, to open our ears and our eyes to his ways, to his nature. This is super hard to take in, I think, but so important. And if we grasp it, I think so very helpful for us. Because when we as Christians confront innocent suffering, either our own or of those we love, I think we've got two choices to make. Either what we do with it is that just for a moment we play make-believe with the God that we know. We suspend our knowledge of him and pretend that he is not sovereign, that he didn't know what was going on as this happened, as suffering came on us, as the calamity fell that somehow he'd, he'd, he'd lost control of things, that he's, he'd slipped his eyes off the ball and, and missed it. But now he's back in control. Everything's fine. It was a mistake. won't happen again. But we can listen to him. Even in this. Even through this pain. Because his goal remains the same. Compassion and mercy. His goal is to rescue us. That's what chapter 36 shows us. And as we make this choice, know that Elihu's words here are not some out there once off comment. The Bible says this again and again to us, Old and New Testament. 
Take, for instance, 1 Peter 1, 6 that says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus is revealed. And know that as Elihu tells us that God speaks first through revelation and then through suffering, that the two are linked, that through suffering he opens our ears so that we will really listen. It says the psalmist in Psalm 119 put it, you you hear these words, they are amazing. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn your word. Big words, aren't they? That's Elihu's point here. Job, because you have suffered, you can know for sure your God is speaking to you. And I suspect you know that experience too. To quote a a great Christian thinker on this, he said, Who of you has lived long enough to suffer some? Who would not say with the Bible here that I have discovered more of his sovereign goodness, more of his grace, more of his wisdom, more of his preciousness, more of his shepherd care in the dark days than in all the bright days combined? Elihu is saying something we must hear. Let me ask you, do you know which are the golden days of your life? Yes, it will include the the great moments like the Shentons have had this week. But what we're learning here is that there are red letter days that perhaps we had forgotten. Days when our God, the, the God who loves us, who made us, was speaking to us. And I know, and I'm sure you'll know this experience too, that some of those days were very dark indeed. Days where all other words seemed useless, but his. Days where he alone can say through the deepest possible pain, this will not end in death. Trust me. Our God speaks through suffering. Words of power. Words of presence. Words of deep abiding comfort. And not just when we suffer ourselves, but also when we as a community suffer. Is it not true that when when we suffer we see God's glorious voice shouting loudest to us of a hope that our world could not possibly know save from him? Be assured, Job, says Elihu, God does speak to you. And having assured Job of this, he encourages him in chapter 36 to persevere. Trust your God. Don't resent the form that his voice takes because he loves you and be patient with him. He will deliver you through all that comes your way to take you where you need to go. Let me say as I read that, I think it's all well and good to say that to to another Christian or to ourselves. Hang in there, God loves you. Be patient, he'll deliver you. But how can we be sure that such perseverance and patience will be vindicated? What good are words anyway? Well, I think this is where this passage gets remarkable. Have a look at Elihu's breathtaking answer. In the face of pain, God does speak words of revelation, words of suffering, yes, but he speaks an even better word than those, an ultimate word. Chapter 33, verse 23. Don't miss this. Now, I'm going to change the translation of the verse because I think it's missed some of the power of the original, the literal meaning of this verse. Chapter 33, verse 23. But if there was a messenger, 
an angel, a word from God, from heaven. A word uh, that would not only be a word, but a word that would mediate between you and God. A word that would declare a man right before God. That's what the end of the verse should say. That would vindicate him. Exactly what Job wants. If there was such a word that could do that, could really vindicate me before God. Sounds hypothetical, doesn't it? But it's not. Not when you know Jesus. Not when you know the word made flesh. He is God's word come from heaven. He is our mediator. He is the only one who can declare a man right before his creator. There's even more to see here. How is it that this word, Jesus, can declare a person right before their God? Can declare Job righteous? It's not because he's blameless, even though he is. It's not because of the catalogue of good things that Job has done. And if you read chapter 31, it is remarkable, the life that Job has lived. Now have a look at verse 24. This is how he does it. This word from heaven, out of compassionate mercy, he demands your rescue, even from death. And how? Well, drink these words in. I think they're amazing. I have found a ransom for him. I've paid it. And it's an amazing ransom, isn't it? His life for yours. He suffers and dies so that I can live. So that the pain and death that I may experience in this life will not overcome me. Jesus says, I have found a rescue for him. And as the passage goes on, it is an amazing rescue. We're told in verse 25 that those who trust him will be restored in their flesh. Like a little baby, like a child again, we're told, will be. 2am Wednesday, Daniel Shedden, it is a miracle, but nothing compared to this one. God says, because of Jesus, you can live again forever. That's not even the best bit. Raised anew to eternal life, freed from mourning or crying or pain, it's good, isn't it? But here's the best bit. The moment that all of that has led up to, the the moment that all the words of revelation, all the words of suffering, all the work of Christ has led up to, this is the golden moment of your life. Chapter 33, verse 26. As you enter heaven, rescued, as you call out to your God and he hears you and he says, come and you see what happens then? You see his face and you shout for joy. What a moment. I've spoken about it before but uh, in Australia we've got this bizarre game called Aussie Rules. No other country has uh, taken it up and there's good reasons for that. But there's a, uh, uh, something that happens very rarely in the game and that is that when one of the players kicks 100 goals in a season, it's almost impossible to do, but uh, for some reason it happened this year, a guy by the name of Buddy Franklin, great name, he kicked uh, 100 goals and I was watching for some reason uh, this week the footage of the 100th goal it was an amazing moment. There's the Melbourne cricket ground with 100,000 people in it, all silent as he's lining up for this goal. And he kicks it and at the moment it goes through, 100,000 people leap in the air with the, the loudest noise you have ever heard. And then all the security guards and the police that line the, the MCG to stop people going on because you're not allowed, and it happens every time, were, were powerless as 100,000 people surge onto the ground. And there's, this guy has given 100,000 separate hugs by people he's never met before. It's an amazing moment. But it's just a guy kicking a piece of pigskin through some sticks. 
here is your moment. You will see his face and you will shout for joy. Yes. And as the passage finishes, we are given a a flourish of images of heaven, of this moment and the ones that follow it. Moments that I suspect, pictures that I suspect we need to keep in our mind for whatever comes our way, this side of heaven. And let me leave you with the last one of them. In verse 27, uh, we have described for us, and it should read, Then he sings with men. This is the song of heaven. You've got to love the lyrics. I've been forgiven by his grace. I've got what I didn't deserve. I've been rescued by his power and I will live with him. That's our song. The one we sing now and we've sung it tonight already and the one we will sing with shouts of joy in heaven before his face. And when we do, he will say as he does in verse 15 of chapter 36, come, let's sit at table together and there is plenty of room for all who have persevered by faith. We will eat choice food We will sing songs of joy and we will live as you have never lived before. James 5.11 You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Let's pray.